All right. Well, today we are starting a new sermon series on the Old Testament book of Esther. So maybe some of you have read this, maybe you've never heard of it. Uh, but as we begin, I want to ju just provide a little bit of historical context. We, we don't typically do a lot of historical context at the beginning of books just because um, you can get lost in that. Uh, and we really just want to dive into the book itself and let it start to teach us. But I do want to begin with a few comments on the context of Esther. So the nation of Israel has a checkered past. They disobeyed God's commands, and this led to them being disciplined by God in a variety of ways. And one of the ways in which, we see, in which God seeks to get their attention is to exile them from the prosperous land that he had given to them. So God led his people into what was known as the promised land, and then he exiles them out of that land. And this is known to have, uh, to have happened three different times. So the first exile was by Assyria, then by the world power Babylon, and then finally Persia. So three of the main kingdoms or world powers, empires that we could go back in history and see. The story of Esther is taking place after the Persian exile. At this time, some Israelites had migrated back to Jerusalem. Esther had not. She had stayed in this country, in the, in the region of Persia, and had not gone back to Jerusalem. And she and some of her family remained in Persia, where they had created some semblance of life. They had rooted themselves somewhat in this region and decided to stay. Now, the book of Esther is located about smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. But if you know the Old Testament, or if you don't, the Old Testament is not ordered chronologically. So you can't just read through it and it's occurring in a chronological manner. Esther, along with the books Ezra and Nehemiah, are considered to be some of the last books written in the Old Testament era. Now, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is about a 400-year period where God seems to be silent. And this is one of the really unique things about the book of Esther. It's almost as if Esther ushered this in. Because one of the most unique aspects of this book is that God is never mentioned. Not one time in the book of Esther is God mentioned. It's silent about God. And yet, as we'll see, God is all over the book and in this story. Now, Esther is a riveting narrative. It's just a story. It tells about a Jewish woman who unexpectedly becomes queen in a foreign nation and uses her position to save her people. Her story has become a foundational celebration in the life of Israel. So what we're going to do in this series is we're going to walk through it chapter by chapter. So when we read this, these are going to be some longer chunks of the Bible. So as I read these, if you want to close your eyes and just kind of picture the story, you're free to do that. Um, it, or whatever is helpful for you. If you want to get your Bible out, you want to turn there, you want to go to your device and swipe there, you can also follow along on the screen behind me. But let's read Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, 
the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Herbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Mamukin the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low 
alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this story, which is in so many ways crazy and offensive. I pray that you would teach us through it. Help us to understand the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your way, which is so much better than our own ways. Help us to see grace and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I had a seminary professor who told me when you come across cities or people's names or whatever that are just kind of hard to pronounce, just say them really confidently and blow right through them and no one will ever know, right? So I kind of felt that way. I was reminded of that this week when I was reading through this. And then I went to YouTube and I did a whole bunch of how to pronounce da-da-da-da-da, right? So um, a couple of comments here quick about some people and places in this story. So first of all, King Ahasuerus is playing a central role here, especially at the beginning of this story. He's a Persian king who's also known by his Greek name of Xerxes, or maybe you've heard Artaxerxes as well. And so this is the same individual. There's, there's plenty of kings that were named by these names as well, but, but he also is known by Xerxes. And then this story is taking place in the city of Susa, which is a capital of Persia. So the city of Susa, we read from India to Ethiopia. So if you, if you know your geography, this is a massive expanse, right? Covers a ton of territory. territory. And here in Susa is kind of the thriving heart of this massive Persian empire. It is a capital of the Persian empire. And then eunuchs are mentioned multiple times throughout the book of Esther, these individuals oftentimes held important roles for the king or the leader that they were charged with serving. Now, something unique about eunuchs, if you didn't know, to, know this, they oftentimes are, were castrated. And in this story, it would not be surprising if that was the case, since they worked so closely with the king's harem. Uh, although we just don't know this for sure one way or another as it pertains to these eunuchs. But they are... Uh, playing a significant role here, especially at the beginning of this story. So let's kind of walk through this story a little bit. So King Ahasuerus has gathered around himself the military as well as some nobles and some governors. These are important people. These are the people who would protect the king. And so what he does is he throws a six-month party. Like this is a legit party, right? six months and the intent of this for the king was to show off that's what he wanted to do in front of these individuals it says he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days so he just wants everyone to know how great he is and then at the end of these six months he invites the whole city it says, great and small, whomever is present. So it's not just the nobles, it's not just the governors, it's not just the military, it's not just the important people, it's all those great and small to come 
and to live with no restraints whatsoever. We also get these descriptions of lavish, ornate fabrics, curtains, gold and silver couches. That's a legit deal, right? Gold and silver couches. It doesn't sound maybe that comfortable. It probably looks impressive, right? And then precious stones. So the idea here is that the king spared no expense in terms of this party. And we're given a brief description of the nature of this party also in that as it pertained to drinking the king's wine, he said... There is no compulsion. There is no compulsion. And so this means there is no restraint. Drink as much as you would like. You're not expected to stop at any point. So probably what this means is the stopping point was passing out, right? Until they came to and then they could start again as well. And then the king's orders were to do as each man desired to do as each man desired. So we can imagine where this would go, right? This would get messy. This would get ugly really fast. So it's no surprise then that we hear of Queen Vashti giving a feast for women. Whether this was to have some distance from the men, to maybe to pursue some protection in numbers in some way, or just to have a different type of party, Vashti provided this different option for women. And then at the end of the seven days, we read, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. So what, what we should read here is, when the king was drunk, Ahasuerus commanded his eunuchs to bring his queen. Ahasuerus knew that his wife was beautiful, and he wanted to show her off like he'd been showing off the glory of his riches from his kingdom. He wanted to stir envy in the hearts of those other important people around him. He wanted to use his wife for his own selfish pleasure. At this moment, she was nothing more than a tool, than a piece of meat for him. There was no respect in this. And so Vashti received the cat call from her husband to come and pleasure the king and his drunken buddies. And she has a very poignant response. She declines the invitation. Now our culture is still rife with mistreatment of women, abuse of women, but there are at least some protections for women in our current context. In that day, women had little to no safeguards. It was open game on them. Men could do what they wanted with little to no repercussions. In a sense, it was kind of the Wild West on women. Still, in the face of this reality, Vashti declined. She would not go. She would not be ogled at by these drunken men. She would not be put on display for amusement. So there was some expectations that had been put on Queen Vashti in her role and in her position, and especially as it pertains to this call to come before these men. In her role as queen, she had certain responsibilities that she needed to fulfill at various times. And a lot of times, maybe she didn't have the opportunity to make choices, right? But she's making a choice here. 
And in, in this instance, she's making a choice that if we would look at it, we would say it's not considered a sin against God. This choice that she's making is not considered a sin against God. Yet, she is still being judged for her decision. And in some ways, she is hated for her decision. She is, in a sense, guilty of sinning against the king, though, right? This is the sin of not sinning. The sin of not sinning. She made a good and right decision, but she's going to be mistreated for her decision. For those of us who trust in Jesus, for Christians, this is something that will be true for us as well. A Christian will make decisions that are good or right in the eyes of God, but are not good and right in the eyes of others. There are times that because of decisions we may make, we might be made fun of by others. We might be excluded in some way. In this sense, it is good to be like Vashti. It is good to be disinvited to the party. It is good to be looked down upon or despised. But I do want to be really clear about this. The goal for Christians is never to get people to hate us. That's never the end goal. There are too many people that have taken Jesus' promise that Christians will be persecuted and seemingly sought to offend people. Engaging in culture wars at times and thinking, oh, well, I must be doing the right thing because people are mad at me. Just because we've offended people does not mean that we have been successful. In many ways, it probably means we have been unsuccessful. It says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When Jesus came to earth, it says that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, right? And he didn't give up on either one of those. So when he was speaking truth, he would still do it gently. At times it was very firm, right? But he's not going out just to offend people. That's not his intent. And for us as followers of Jesus, if we're placing our trust in Jesus, the same should be true of us. The call is for us, when we speak truth, to be full of grace. But it doesn't also mean then that we just, we're just full of grace, like we get run over all the time, right? And that there is no truth. No, there is still truth as well. And so we want to be people who are wrestling seriously with what does this look like in all of life. We want to be people who are full of grace and who are full of truth, who are being thoughtful as it pertains to the things in our culture. But when the day comes when we're faced with sinning against God versus sinning against the expectations of culture or others, may we choose like Vashti. May we be willing to endure the scorn of others as we humbly, gently choose Jesus over all else. Now, not surprisingly, when Vashti makes her decision, it enrages King Ahasuerus. So here he was, this individual, he's got all these important people around him, right? People envied him. 
But in the blink of an eye, things are moving from envy to embarrassment because his wife is not complying. And so what he does is he seeks the so-called help of his advisors. And I find it so interesting what he does here. He says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? So notice what his advisor Mamukin then states here. It says, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So notice what Mamukin is saying here. He's not quoting any law, right? That's where King Ahasuerus is going. He's saying, what's the law that's being broken? And Mamukin's got nothing, right? He doesn't go to the law here at all. He just says, Vashti is accused of doing wrong. And then he says, not just doing wrong against the king, right? But all of the officials, and not just all of the officials, but all of the peoples in all of Persia. This is what we would call trumped up charges, right? Let's just try and show that it's bigger than it really is. And then the cherry on top of this is Mamukin references all of the noble women of Persia and Media, right? So we've got, we've got Vashti, and she clearly is not a noble woman. But then, if we would look at all these other women in Persia and Media, of course, they wouldn't be like Vashti. These are noble women, right? So he's going to point to them as well and how all of those noble women will be led astray by Vashti's decision. So we need to get a real close look at how these men are ruling. They are, in a sense, painting themselves as victims. They're trying to assert how these women would be out of control when all of this starts with what appears a woman simply wanting to be treated with respect. So notice what happens here. The officials are consorting together to determine what law has been broken. Nothing is found or referenced in terms of a law. Simply Vashti has done wrong. And so then they make a law that probably brings at least a sense of relief to Vashti. She is banished from coming in front of the king. So do you see how this is working? They're basically forcing her to, do, her to do the very thing she's already chosen to do. Now, obviously for Vashti, there's going to be some loss of luxuries and privileges that she might find hard to give up from time to time. But if she's at a point where she's refusing the orders of the king, she is likely significantly fed up with his actions. This is probably something that's happened in the past. And she's probably counted the cost before she's made this decision that she's making. In a sense, we could see how there's grace in this scenario. And how grace is better than law. The law is intended to be harsh or to harm the queen. But it affords Vashti some freedoms and respect that we would say, she would say, probably is far better than the life she has been living. In the face of law, corrupt law, trumped up law, unjust law, broken law, Vashti 
finds favor. And this occurs in some unexpected ways. And in this, we can see glimpses of grace. Now, the whole of this story, Esther, is about God's salvation, which is also the story of the whole Bible. The book of Esther is a story of how God's favor, or we would say how God's grace comes to people who don't deserve it. And it results in their salvation. In fact, God's grace comes to people who are not looking for it, who we could say aren't even aware of their need for God's grace. Even though God is never mentioned throughout this book, we begin now to see glimpses of how he is working. One of the ways that we're already seeing this come to fruition, and this will become clear as the story unfolds, is concerning the removal of Vashti from the role of queen. In this, in this action, we see a micro form of salvation for Vashti. But this will have much greater implications as the story unfolds. As of right now in this story, no Jewish person would look at what's transpiring right now at the removal of Vashti and say, see, God is working for his people. He's doing something profound. No Jewish person would say that right here and now in the story. None of them would say that. And I think maybe this is a word of encouragement for us and how this can teach us as well. There are things in our lives that make no sense to us. Hard things. Things that we would not choose in and of ourselves. And one of the great encouragements of the book of Esther is that God is at work when we are unaware. God is at work when we are completely unaware. So often we're oblivious to our need of God. Day in and day out we think, man, I, I'm okay. Or I'm self-sufficient. I can do this on my own. I can handle at least most things. But the reality is we're way more needy than we realize. Even the strongest person here, whoever you might be, you are way more needy than you realize. We are way more needy than most of us would want to admit. And, and all of this points to a great gift, the fact that God is at work when we're unaware. This is a great gift from God, a great consolation that God is at work even when we are unaware. And what this maybe screams at us is maybe God wants you to be saved more than you want to be saved. Maybe God wants someone in your life to be saved more than they want to be saved or more than you want them to be saved. One of the most comforting realities in this story is God's commitment to messy people. And I think we totally underestimate God's commitment to us in the midst of all of our mess. There's a ton of grievous sin in this story. We've already seen some of it. We're going to see more of it as the story unfolds. And yet, in the midst of grievous sin, God keeps working. God keeps saving. One of the greatest promises in the whole Bible is Romans 8.28. It says there, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together 
for good. That's a massive statement. It doesn't say just the things you think work for good, work for good. It doesn't say some things work for good. For those who love God, all things, the unexplainable things, things that we might hate in our own selves, things that confound us, God will somehow, some way, take them and work good. God works good in situations we have no idea how he might be able to. I was thinking about this as it pertains to Michael Pastor this week. No one looks at Michael Pastor's cancer and thinks, that's good. No one would think that. It's horrific. His cancer is horrific. We have no answers as to how God might work good through this. But what we learn from the story of Esther, what we learn from Romans 8.28, is God was working in ways even before Michael's diagnosis, ways that we can't conceive, ways that we can't understand. And he has promised he will work good through it. It doesn't mean cancer is good. That's not what this is saying. It's saying he will take something that is horrific and evil and he will still accomplish good through it. And in this it demonstrates the extent of God's goodness. That he will take something that is devastating and he will still accomplish good. And whatever that is, it will probably surprise us. It will probably astonish us in certain ways. But God is at work in ways, in spheres, at times when we are completely unaware of. And this is good news. And this brings us to our gospel application. So we end our sermons here at Center Church not with application, Okay, we don't want you walking out of here thinking, these are the things that I need to do. Because our thought is, if we give you three things to do at the end of every sermon, at the end of, your, at the end of every year, that is, if my math is correct, 156 things you should be doing. And I'm pretty sure every single one of us would be overwhelmed. And we would tap out and say, I can't do all that, because we can't. So we want you walking out of here thinking about this is who Jesus is. This is how he saves. This is why the gospel is good news to you. So I've got one point of gospel application for us this morning. Jesus compels obedience through his sacrificial love. So the picture we're given in this story of King Ahasuerus and his officials is one that is common to us. So all around us, what's natural in our world is that obedience is coerced. Obedience is coerced. A parent tells their child, you can't play your video game unless you do what I say. A sibling says, I'll make your bed for you if you pay me in some way. An employer coerces employees to work 60 hours a week because they say, I pay your salary. 
King Ahasuerus and his administration were forcing compliance by law. They wanted to be loved, but their fear of women not doing what they wanted caused them to try and force love. And this cheapens it. In fact, it's not love at all. It's coercion. And what I want to be really clear about is this is not the way of Jesus. Coercion is not the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't coerce people to follow him by striking the fear of punishment into them. Now, you might say, what about hell? Isn't God just trying to scare people into obedience? And here at Center Church, we encourage hard questions. Okay? God's not scared of questions. All right? We should wrestle through hard things for sure. And this is a legitimate question. But I would say God is never trying to scare anybody into hell. Nor is he trying to scare people into heaven by scaring the hell out of them. Like that, that's not what God does. Hell is not the motivation for following Jesus. It might be part of the picture for sure. But it's not the motivation for following Jesus. Hell is ultimately an absence of God. Okay? Hell is real for sure. But hell is the result for choosing not God. Hell is the result for not trusting in that which is good. All of us yearns for that which is good. And Jesus is the ultimate good. The motivation then for trusting Jesus is what we see on the cross. Jesus set aside everything he possesses. So he's at creation. He possesses power. He's helping speaking things into existence at the beginning of everything. He's setting all of that aside. He comes down off of his throne and he takes on flesh so he can identify with you and me. He sets aside all of his power becomes just like us, feels our weakness, knows our struggle. He takes all of this on as a means to save us in a very unexpected way. Jesus doesn't coerce us so we might avoid punishment. Jesus takes the punishment on himself. There's no coercion in that. Jesus is taking all of that on himself. He bears the weight, the shame, the cost of our sin. He suffers for us. The reason for trusting Jesus is because of his lavish love for us. This is why we surrender our lives to him. Not because of coercion, but because he loves us in a way that no one else ever will or has. So this is why we give up our dreams. Whatever your dreams are, this is why people lay their dreams down. This is why we sacrifice our time and our money. This is why we love others sacrificially when it hurts us when they don't un- or when they don't deserve it. This is why we speak hard truths graciously. This is why we pray with and for others. This is why we spend time with others. This is why we, why we regard those who have nothing to offer us. 
on the cross as Jesus is dying. He looks down at the men who are killing him. He doesn't spite them. He doesn't hurl slurs at them. He looks at them and graciously says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is an unbelievable statement. The men who are killing him, he is speaking grace over them. What kind of love is that? It's a love that is higher and wider and deeper and longer than any love any of us will encounter. The person sitting next to us can't come close to it. You just can't. And it's a love that changes people, reorders lives, changes priorities. And it's a love worth dying for as well. It's a love that in those days when suffering hits, when questions and doubts mount, when answers seem fleeting, when we have to choose to do that which is a sin in the eyes of our culture, it's a love that allows us to make a choice that is not a sin against God. It is a love that keeps us in the midst of the hardest things in life, that allows us to say, I don't understand all that I am experiencing, but I know this love is secure. I know Jesus' love is enough for me. And so then we trust in that love. We believe in Jesus, the one who does not coerce us, but the one who loves us into obedience. Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus.